John 4, 34 through 38. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work and now you will get together the harvest. Let's welcome Phil. Goodness, that was terrifying. All right, well, let's pray um, as we um, look at God's word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you open it to us, and we pray that you open our hearts to your word, that you go before us this morning as we explore who you are and who we are in light of that. Father, we love you, and we ask that you help us this morning to discern your will, your plan for each of our lives. Amen. So we're still talking about um, partnering in the gospel. We're, we're exploring what we each have to bring to the, to the team, if you like, to the community. Um, I mean, some good examples already. You know, Amber's leaning into Communitas and those verses on, on the back of the bulletin about giving. They came from Eric, um, Andy and his book of faces. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Jasmine's this opportunity. Um, now, that's not to say this is an open mic, so please come forward with your ideas, but do let us know if you have this stirring, if you have like, hey, I feel like God's saying this is something that, that, that's got potential, this is something that I feel I'm drawn into, then let us know, and we, we would love to hear from you. But hopefully you're challenging yourselves and inviting the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of what it is that you bring and where it is that you should really lean in. Because the work of the church, the partnership, it isn't optional. It's not optional for those of us that are following Christ. We all need to take part of the work that must be done. That, that first verse that Jasmine read, it tells us that Jesus himself was not afraid of work. So we're, we're in John chapter 4. Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. So just where you know, so you know where we're heading this morning, um, I actually want to end with that passage. That's the end of where we're going today, the completion of the work that Jesus has begun. But I do think the idea of partnership kind of makes sense to us as a, as a, as a concept. It's easy to get on board with the idea of a partnership in kind of anything. Someone wants, us to partner, wants to partner with us, they want my help. So there's some encouragement there. I feel valued there. We're needed, perhaps. What I think can be really challenging is considering what our offering is. That's harder. Um, I, I did our taxes this past week, and, and the idea that we all contribute financially to, to the running of society, that, that makes sense, theoretically, right? But even if we kind of have to put a pin in how that's spent, like maybe put that aside for a second, the idea of like giving money to society, and that, that makes sense to us. Having to figure out what I owe, what my part is or should be, is a little bit harder in so many ways. 
And as I was praying about this message of, of how do we discern what, what our offering is, how do we discern what God is calling us into, um, I felt God laid me to this, this, this example of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And the book of Nehemiah um, is very practical. It's full of, of leadership lessons. It's full of wisdom. And it gives this picture of someone who figured out what their offering was. And he was all in, in bringing that offering to further God's kingdom work. So some background. Um, Nehemiah goes alongside the previous book in the Bible, the book of Ezra. Now Ezra tells God's people, tells us that God's people are in exile in Babylon. And this is returned to Jerusalem. And in exile, they're experiencing this consequence of ignoring God and, and disobeying his, his word. And Ezra tells us the building work of those returned, to, those returned exiles has stopped by a royal decree. The royal decree said, hey, you can't do this anymore. So it's all stopped. But when it starts again, it tells us how Ezra himself returns with 1,700 or so men and their families to help. So they've started this work with a big chunk of people. Twelve years later, Nehemiah makes the journey back. And he reports that things are still pretty bad in Jerusalem. He, he gives us this, this account of how he's able to, to help those discouraged people rebuild the wall. That's the whole book. It's, this, it's how he does this and how he starts this new period of restoration. Jerusalem, as it was then, is kind of like the church now in some ways. There's disillusionment. There's decline. There's depression. In chapter 2... Verse 17, Nehemiah says, I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And I think we can learn from Nehemiah's rebuilding work and his work for change and his work for partnering together in the work. Because the church is the network of believers sent across the world, no longer confined to Israel or Jerusalem, but reaching throughout the world, united by Jesus as his divine head and king. And now Nehemiah didn't have that construct yet, but the principles we see in Nehemiah's work are the same principles now. One thing you can say about Nehemiah, maybe the thing you can say about Nehemiah, is he was a worker. He got done. He really worked for it. He believed in work, unlike maybe the nobles you read about in the Old Testament. He was a man of action, not just talk. Not someone who just expected others to do the work. He truly partnered. He truly shared the load. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. He sees the problem. And then we see later how he gets stuck in to solve it. But before that, before he starts the solution, and so importantly, he's a man of prayer. The first thing he did when he hears of this condition of the people of Jerusalem is he weeps and he prays. What's your response when you consider the needs of those around you? Or the ministry areas that you're feeling called into or inspired by? Does your heart ache for this city? Does your heart ache for those you're sitting next to or in front of or behind? Um, if you're familiar with um, the, the strength finder personality thing, uh, responsibility is one of the top ones of mine. And so I, I deeply care about the things that I'm in, entrusted to and, and, and I can relate a little bit to Nehemiah's response. Now, I am no, I'm no Nehemiah. But I understand the idea of, like, of weeping and praying for this church for yearning for us to get out of our own way, to fulfill the potential God has placed in every single one of us. 
to care for his world, to fully embrace and realize the love he has for you and to further his kingdom here. The enemy will always be attacking the church and maybe especially when there is growth and fruit and health. So when you read of of bad things in churches, what do you do? What do I do? What do we all do? It's easy to pass judgment. It's easy to only see the fallout, to watch the drama unfold and process the pain, yeah, if we're directly affected by it. But Nehemiah would see those news articles, that Instagram post, that church statement in response to an incident. He'd respond as he did in Jerusalem in the year 445. He said, I, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days, I mourned, I fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Is that our response? An emotional connection? Do we fast, which is a message for another day perhaps, but fasting is a way to focus prayers towards something, a discipline of doing without to allow something else to take its place. And I know many of you, many of us find that a helpful practice. Um, I also find, um, in addition to fasting or when I'm fasting, to, to pray that canonical hours is really helpful for me. It's a Catholic practice set down by St. Benedict, basically in the sort of 500s, about the same time. Um, and you, you pray seven times a day and then once at night. It's, it's taken from Psalm 118. And it's an intentional rhythm of prayers throughout the day, every couple of hours. And it's um, this idea of prayer and labor, prayer and labor, prayer and labor. And, and Benedict was renowned for this kind of work. That was this, this modeling, this work in, in monasteries where the Benedictine order came from. Of, of contemplation and prayer and active work being side by side so that, that one didn't dominate the other. They were in balance. Um, Benedictine, in, in the Benedictine's rule, it's the, the monk's rule book, it said idleness is the enemy of the soul. And this was kind of his antidote to that. Prayer and work are partners. And he believed, as did Nehemiah, that combining contemplation and action was vital. So Nehemiah got emotionally involved in the issue at hand, and then he prayed. So do you want to see the growth of the church here in New York City? Pray, and then work. Are you perhaps horrified by the spiritual state of this country? Pray, and then work. Prayer is not an alternative to work. Nehemiah teaches us that we must do both. You must pray and work. Nehemiah was a praying worker, and we should be too. We should be praying workers. He was a man of, of great faith, and that's why he prayed. He had this big vision of God, this big vision of God. This, this prayer, he begins in, in chapter 1, in verse 5. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, He knew God as this God of the heavens. He knew him as a God of love, this sovereign, merciful Lord that overrules the kings of Persia and the leaders of Greece and and Rome and anywhere else. And he can overrule our current world leaders, despite what they think. And he can overrule your own situation. So Nehemiah prays for the situation that he sees. He prays for the work that's, that's ahead of him, for the decisions that have to be made. He, pr- he prays that God will provide a way. 
So as you pray, as you work for him, keep that vision of God as the one in ultimate control in the mind. Because Nehemiah was this man of prayer and he was a worker for God, but he kept that big vision of God through it all, through all those things. And then chapter 2, we read how he moves to action. He asks the Persian king, our taxes, to give him written authority for rebuilding the wall, this wall of Jerusalem. He asks for, for these materials for building, and, and he even asks for a security escort to get in there. So he acknowledges this problem set before him. The issue pulls at his heart, and he prays for it. Then he uses his position, which is a political one, as the cupbearer, to set things in motion. He doesn't just charge in. He covers the work in prayer, and he does the groundwork. He sets out the foundation for God to move. And then in chapter 3, we finally see the work begins. Because Nehemiah is a worker for God, partnering with God, as we should be, workers, partners for the Lord. Because the, the Bible makes it clear, I think, that work is good for us. Because through work, we co-creators with God. We walk through some of these themes in Genesis, in, in, in January, in the early part of the year. The original partnership between man and God was that of, of a creative place. The work of the Garden of Eden was entirely creative. And then that partnership was broken. And Adam and Eve made a choice to try and become equal with God, and the work changed. And now work involves bringing good where there is brokenness, healing where there's pain. And, amid, and work amid pain and brokenness means strain and challenge. In heaven, our work will be serving God and reigning forever and ever. And again, the work will be entirely creative and stress-free, Revelation 22. No work on earth is promised to be challenge-free, however, even though it's a good thing for us. Good doesn't mean easy or enjoyable always. I think I am, there's so many parallels, I, I use these all the time, between a spiritual journey and a physical health journey. And the, this is another one, and exercise is good for us, it isn't always easy. It can be challenging to get into, to find the right, the right thing for our, for our bodies, for our interests. Uh, Isaac Newton's first law of motion is often applied in terms of uh, physical exercise. A body at motion stays in motion, and a body at rest stays at rest. Oh, that's profound. What people always miss when they quote that is the next bit of that law, of that quote. Because a, a, a body in motion stays in motion, a body at rest stays at rest, unless acted on by an outside force. Which is an important thing to keep in mind for physical health and spiritual well-being. If we are in motion, we can stay there. We have momentum, we have growth. But there are always outside forces we don't exist, we don't serve in a vacuum, and that's where the prayer part is so important. Whether it's ministry work, whether it's work at home, whether it's work in the workplace, there are always outside forces. There are always inside forces too. That small voice in your mind, your insecurities, your past experiences, all, all, all the things. We have to guard against them. We have to work against it. It wasn't stress-free for Nehemiah in the palace of Susa or working in Jerusalem. And yeah, there needs, to be, there needs to be rest and relaxation. That's another message for another time. But even, you just need to know that working, even serving in obedience to God's call, can and probably will be hard. But in spite of all the challenge, 
in spite of all the difficulty, maybe even because of it, work is a human good. And it seems Nehemiah knew this, and so that's how he worked. Now, God sometimes works directly in the world, and since the creation of the world, we see from Scripture and our own experience, though, that he regularly works indirectly through people. Like, you, know, you imagine anything, sickness and healing. God can work directly through some miraculous healing, but regularly he works indirectly through doctors, nurses, medicine, and you know, all the things. In our faith journey, he works both directly and indirectly. The Holy Spirit brings conviction and new life and works through other men and women, and mostly Marcy, as they witness and minister to others. So we, we pray for the Holy Spirit to work, but that is not all we have to do. Nehemiah could have gone to Jerusalem and said, God wants the walls rebuilt and then gone home. And that would have been God's ultimate truth. But we could also suppose that the walls would never have been rebuilt. Nehemiah could have stayed in, in Susa at the royal palace, prayed for God's spirit to work in miraculous ways to repair the wall himself. And God could have answered that prayer. But it's so much more like God to work through his people in missional work. It's so much so that in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, it teaches that God uses ordinary people to achieve his purposes in this world as they work for him. And I love that. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. He encourages and leads the people he found to do God's work. He planned, motivates, he organizes this tired, demoralized, discouraged community of returned exiles. And he doesn't do it alone. He shares the work he delegates it to a wide range of other people and he coordinates their efforts. He worked to protect them from negative forces, attacks on the outside, because rebuilding the walls required so many people under his leadership. And it was a leadership partnered with other people because God uses a variety of people. The beauty of the church is in its diversity. So the way we approach the work of the church needs to be flexible. One size fits all, it's not going to work. No one person can have all the answers. No one formula, no one strategy, no one program will catalyze the work of everyone. No one gift, no one training course, which is why I wanted to approach this response to partnering in the gospel with your own reflection on what God is calling you into what your offering is. Not, not here's our framework. Here's our idea. Here's our program list. Here are 17 clipboards and sign-up sheets and, and only three pens and two of them don't work. In the case of Nehemiah's war, there were 41 groups of builders working all at the same time. He recognized different situations, different strengths and weaknesses and contexts, and he let them play to their strengths. Now, as I was writing this message, I, at one point, for quite a while, like for at least a day, I thought, let's read the whole of chapter three because it highlights these ordinary people that by simply bringing their offering, their time and their efforts, their, their work in partnership got named in the Bible. And that's incredible to me. Our previous church that we were at, that Shay and I were at, um, is now over 50 years old. We were there um, during the 50-year celebration, and it, and it went through a couple of location changes in its history, from starting in a tiny little place, and then I think it moved two or three times before they built this giant facility that they, they still use sometime in the 80s. 
And, and, and when we were there, and there's still these remnants of that period when they were building this thing and you know, raising money and stuff. And, and on one of, the, one of the floors, there's this giant, I don't know, board thing, sort of, I don't know, cemented into the wall with, with um, brass plaques on it, engraved with the names of people that purchased seats in the, in the auditorium. And I think we often think that's what it's meant, that's what partnering means, that's what we get. I did something, I passed a threshold of involvement Maybe I gave an opinion, now put my name on the wall. Well, at some point, that building will be torn down. Those nameplates will be removed. Maybe, I mean, it looked like it was part of the structure, but I think they'll be removed. At some point, it will be done. But what these folk did with Nehemiah did real kingdom work. Real kingdom work. And so their names, as will yours, are recorded in a lasting way. However, um, I tried reading chapter three out loud to myself, and it was exhausting. So I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to skim it for you just to show the variety of what we see in that chapter, because I think it's really powerful. Verse one refers to high priests and his fellow priests that worked on the wall. Verses two and seven refer to people from outside the area, men of Jericho, men from Gibeon and Mizpah. We read there's verses of rulers, of high-up officials getting their hands dirty in the work. They're all involved, all these levels. Verse 6, it tells us the people who worked in pairs. Eight of a goldsmith and a manufacturer of perfume working on two adjacent sections of the wall. Later on, it talks about goldsmiths and merchants working together. In verse 12, we hear of Shalom, son of Halahesh, and his daughters engaged in the same building work. The building work isn't gender-specific. Social standing has no relevance. Occupation, marital status, age, it's irrelevant in our call to partner with God. There are so many different sorts of people all working together towards God's goal. And they all worked closely with one another. Many were assigned to, or maybe chose, we don't know, chose portions of the wall in front of or adjacent to their houses. The priests rebuilt the area near the, area near the temple. The temple servants near the area, sorry, near their dwelling on the temple mount. Jediah, the portion of the wall opposite his house. Benjamin and Hasub, the portion of the wall in front of their house. This chapter highlights, quite laboriously, honestly, that the work of God requires so many different people. And we should look for God to show us the work that is right in front of us. In front of our house, next to our dwelling, right there. Where is the work on your doorstep? You don't have to go far. You don't actually have to dream big to be a partner in the gospel work. And the first step might feel small, but it isn't the end. It isn't one and done. There's so much work to do. And once you step into partnership work, you'll see what, God, what doors God will open up. And as you step through those doors, there's a few things worth noting and learning from the book of Nehemiah. It says in, in verses 5 and 27, it says, Next were the people from Tekoa. Their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors for some reason. But then came the people of Tekoa who repaired another section across from the great projecting tower. So these people from Tekoa didn't peace out once the first task was done. They saw a bigger picture. They saw God's bigger picture, and they asked, All right, that's done. What's next? It takes time. It takes energy to partner in gospel work. And time, as you know, and energy, as we very much know, are not infinite. So you may need to consider 
Where are you letting the world absorb too much of your time, too much of your energy, so that God is just getting the leftovers? Or maybe for you, what areas of your life need more of that time, more of that energy, so that you can be fully functioning in kingdom work at some point? Because there's little value in being all into partnering work if you ignore what else in your life needs work too. Um, years ago, Shane and I were just newly-ish married, and we had a, a, a car, I can't remember what happened now, a car broke or something. We needed a car, and so we bought this second-hand car. It was a silver SUV. It was great. I loved it. It was so comfortable to drive, um, and, but it had all these ripped seats. The front seats were all torn because it was second-hand. You know, people climbing in and out of it. So we bought these new seat covers, these, like, pleather seat covers, cause, and they were the same, the same shade as the rest of the, of the, rest of the interior because, you know, I didn't want to be, you know, it's not the 70s. Yeah, you know, I wanted it to match. So we put these things in. It cost more than it should have done, all that kind of stuff. And I kid you not, like a week later, the radiator was cracked. And I don't know anything about cars, but apparently that's expensive or big or something. Um, so the, the car was a write-off. There's no point in adding new car seat covers if the radiator is cracked. So fixed radiator. So if that's the radiator in your life needs fixing, let's get it done so that you can be released into real work. As you start that work, that partnership work, expect people to not understand, to be cautious. So be confident as you share your dream. It says in verse 30, Next, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalath, repaired another section. You see why I didn't read this? It's like this the whole way through. But it raises this question that I think is interesting. The sixth son, the sixth son. Where are the other five? Maybe you're in a family that doesn't show the same commitment to church, to Jesus. Don't let the other family members discourage you in your work for the Lord. And that's a challenge, and that's hard, and that can feel isolating. When I stepped into ministry, um, I, the, the thing was to move to California and do this, this um, internship. And my parents referred to it as, as the harebrained scheme. For a, for a, it's pretty accurate, for a year. But I do promise you this, it may feel lonely and isolating and it may feel hard. God will honor you for stepping out and making that choice and being different. There's a whole chunk in Ezra in, where people confess their sins. All, all their names are listed, there's a chapter of it. And it kind of reminds you of the story I told a few weeks ago. Um, when I lived in Newcastle, there's a, there's a metro system, like a, a light rail system. And if you, if you didn't pay the ticket, if you, you know, jumped the rail over and they caught you, they'd list your name on the wall in the station as a metro loser. You know, it's your name and where you live. You're a metro loser is what it's called. And this, this list reads a lot like that. This kind of, here are the people, you know. And Malkajar is listed in this list in Ezra. But we see him again in Nehemiah, apparently, now restored, working in the community of believers. Because God uses people with all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of past, all sorts of presence even. If you admit your sin, seek God's forgiveness, bring what you have, bring an offering to the table, God will use you. Which brings us to that verses in John 4. Jesus was work-oriented, Explain my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. 
The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I send you to the harvest where you didn't plant. Others have done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Jesus' earthly work is now finished with the cross and resurrection. So the fields are ripe for harvest. Christ has sown, and we now, if we'll just open our eyes and get out of our own way, able to reap. And that's the work that God is calling us to partner in. And if you've never heard that call to partner, it may be because you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you can do that this morning. Seek his forgiveness for, for ignoring him, for rejecting him, for trying to be equal to him, whatever kind of that iteration was for you, for rejecting his word, and you can receive that life and power of the Holy Spirit. But if you have accepted Christ, are you committed to this reaping work, this harvesting work? Are you committed to the partnership? And if so, what is your section of wall? What are the needs at the doorstep? What is your offering going to be? Now, over the next few weeks, um, we're going to be talking about missional living. This was a, a, mentioned in Marcy's email. So to help frame that work over the next few weeks, we want us to read this, this really short book. Now, don't, don't roll your eyes. It's a short book. You can read it real quick. I promise you. Um, it's... As a church, we're, we're, a, we're a book study church. This isn't the book that we study. Um, we study the Bible, but this will help us a little bit with a few practical examples, a few practical helps. It's very easy. We're going to walk through some of the themes over the next few Sundays. You can read it at your own pace. You can read it all this afternoon if you want. You can read it two chapters a week as you walk through. It's entirely up to you. You can find it on um, Audible. You can find it on Kindle if you prefer those platforms. If you're, if you're listening online or for some other reason you need another copy or something, then um, send a message to Marcy and we will figure out getting you what you need so you can dive into it. But as we dive into these biblical concepts of missional living, of what this partnership and offering means sort of daily, I think it will be a helpful tool. It will, it will help frame some of the theoretical into some practical applications, some very simple steps and what otherwise can feel a little bit hard to get my arms around. So that they're, they're coming around now, so do take one. And if, if you leave it behind, I'll know. Because <laughs> I know where you all sit. To say it's available if you prefer it in Audible or Kindle or whatever it is. Um, so do do please engage with that over the next few weeks. It is a, it's an easy read. It's an inspiring read, and it is not um, something that's going to be too hard to grapple with. I think it will give you some good ideas and some inspiration of how to live in a way that is missional and community-minded day by day. Let me pray for us before we enter our time of a communion. Well, Father, we thank you for the examples you give us in the Bible of how we can partner with you, how we can serve the kingdom work. And we ask that you do a work in our hearts, that you stir up where you want us to lean in individually and corporately as a church. So that we step forward as one, not doing the same thing, doing the thing that you have made us to do, that you have created us to be. And that together, bringing all that we have, 
we can further your kingdom work. We ask this in his name. Amen.